You are listening to the Quite Useless Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Quite Useless Podcast. My name's Jordan Shaw. I'm Poppy Laroni. This week we're talking about Season 5 of Netflix's Orange is the New Black. Lord's new album Melodrama. And the untitled abortion series by Portuguese-British artist Paula Rago. Jordan, how was your week? It was fine. Yeah, it was alright. <laughs> that was such a sad sigh of... It was fine, yeah. Well, you know, I, I expect better of June, to be honest. I think June's a pretty good month. It's it is a pretty good, good month. That's why I was expecting more of it. Because when you're locked in an academic hell, June <laughs> is just... It seems That's like, a nice cheery thought to have around graduation time. <laughs> seems like heaven. Uh, but it's not heaven. But it is better than studying for exams and stuff. But I dare say that my week pales in comparison to yours based on your Instagram photos. I did have a nice week. Yeah. I was up in Aberfoyle, looking after my mum and dad's house, and looking after our two dogs. Why did the house need looked after? Really? My mum and dad were away for their yearly holiday for their anniversary. Oh, nice. Um, and, yeah, so Martha was working in Dundee, painting set all week, and I ordered a new phone, fought with the delivery men for two days, and lay out in the sun. It's pretty nice. Good. Yeah. Do you have any artistic experiences to share? I did. Martha and I went to Dundee, to Dundee Rep, to see Room, uh, the NTS adaption of the book slash movie. Um, yeah, so it was Emma Donoghue who wrote the book, wrote the script for it, and Cora Bissett wrote and directed... She directed it and wrote four of the songs, and Catherine... Catherine Joseph wrote the other four of the songs um, and it had been in London I think for about a month and then it was in Dundee for a week and then it's at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin I think it is in Dublin yeah so they're over there for I think another five weeks which I found quite odd considering it was an NTS production <laughs> um, yeah. but you know um, National Theatre productions come up here things like that so. yeah no yeah yeah 100% when you say book <coughs> Was it based on a novel, or do you just mean the you know the script? Oh no, it was, was a novel. Right. Um, a novel um, by Emma Donoghue, who I think is um, Irish Canadian, um, and it's a really fantastic book. Basically, written about um, this woman who's been held captive in a room for the last seven years, and it's her and her son who she's had with the the kidnapper. And it's all told from the son's perspective, which is really, really nice. Um, And you get this kind of innocence, but she manages to draw in the depth of the kind of horror about what Mm -hmm. Ma is the other character, what she's been through. And um, the film came out in 2015, and Brie Larson won the Oscar for it. And then this is the musical. Um, How is that? dark material work then as a musical it really does work actually I think um, so they kind of they brought Ma and um, Jack is the wee boy's name there's the two of them and they kind of lead most of the play but the only way they could really think of to make it possible for Jack to exist 
and have the kind of big bellied songs that you should have in a kind of musical setting um, was that they had an older Jack who played alongside Ma and Jack but wasn't seen by either of them okay. and it was really really nice um, but it wasn't a traditional musical in your jazz hands big dance numbers kind of sense it was more um, like a play with a lot of music in it Okay. but it wasn't like big upbeat numbers um, but the music was really nice it really fitted with the tone of the piece and the way that they used the set was fantastic there was this bit and the whole audience just like intake of breath because it completely just blew you away what they managed to create on stage it was really really interesting I was also at a National Theatre Scotland production this week so you were um, I say production It's I'm not entirely sure what it was <laughs> and when I got there I was talking to one of the the people who was organising it because it required a great deal of organisation mm-hmm. and a great deal of explanation and I asked them what do you think this thing that you have made is she was like nah, I don't really know it was a sort of I mean it was a production it was produced a kind of art piece it was called Submarine Time Machine um, and it was along the like the Fur Hill Canal I think it's called I've never been around there before but it was a series of about a dozen performances going on all the way along the canal um, was it up by Rock Villa the NTS building yeah yeah Right there. Um, it was to celebrate. I think they're they're moving into that. Right. That day. It is a beautiful space lovely. up there. Yeah, it's lovely. It was a lovely view along the canal and stuff. That was what I liked most about it. Uh-huh. Was just walking along the canal. It was nice weather. Um, but they had a dozen performances all the way going along all the way around the canal. Um, and each of them was a little vignette from different periods in in Glasgow's history, going all the way back. Most of them were in the twentieth century, but there was one going all the way back to the eighteenth. Um, yeah, it was just little vignettes of, of performance, song, um, stories, and things like that. And it had quite a big cast, didn't it? It had a huge cast, yeah. Um, you know, because there was a dozen performances going on, and each of them had, you know, about five five performers in it. Um, I didn't get to see them all, and it seemed like um, there was one, you know, it's called Submarine Time Machine, and there was one performance that took place inside a, a submarine and I say that in inverted commas because it wasn't actually a real submarine but it looked very impressive it was a canal boat with additions built onto it um, but you had to book into that uh, right. when I got there it was full but uh, the best bit as I said was just walking along the canal and it was a nice, I met some swans and baby swans like ugly ducklings, they were very friendly I've heard a lot of bad things about swans. They get bad press. Oh yeah, people's arms swans and stuff. are really vicious. Yeah. When we were doing the, the play down in air, there was a swan like in the ocean, like, and I was like, are they not normally in a pond or like some sort of enclosed body of water? This swan was just swimming across the sea. It was very strange. But I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of swans. No. Have you seen their mouths? Though? Like when they open their mouths. Yeah, they're like razor sharp teeth. teeth. Like, yeah, they're terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. We had a dog that almost got bit by one once. I saw in Queen's Park once, I was going by on the bus, and there was a German Shepherd in Queen's Park going up to the pond, and there was a swan there just looking at it, and then the dog was getting closer and closer and closer, and then the swan moved slightly, and the dog just bolted in the other direction. I was like, that is understandable. A German Shepherd should be scared of a swan. Absolutely terrifying. I ought to have been more cautious, probably, because they had their little babies around, and they're probably more violent when their babies are... Yeah, likely. But they, they were quite friendly, and they would they would like came out onto the grass, 
and everyone was looking at them and there was like a performance going on like a public performance and there was like at least as many people just gathered around the swans taking photos yeah that's the beauty of site specific <laughs> theatre so I was like I did kind of like oh they've put so much work into this and we were just looking at the swans yeah you've got to take what comes in the moment uh, alright so well, shall we move on to this week so we've got a lot to talk about quick week yeah. that was no, done quick week sorry I didn't get to say quick week. I know, I, I, I sneakily moved into that segment so you couldn't say it. That's but, rubbish. You know, I hope you feel better having got it in. So, first up this week, we're talking about Orange is New Black. Season 5 came out on the 9th of June, my birthday. Next week, birthday treat every year. <laughs> Does it always come out on the 9th of June? Yeah. Where, like, the first season came out on the 9th, and this season came out on the 9th, but it's always that kind of week. Right. It's not the 9th, it's the 10th. Um, but yeah, so it's um, a 13-episode season, and it's all based in the 72 hours that the prison stages a riot um, in response. Not really in response. Well, no, I think it was in response to the death of Pussy. One of the most beloved characters at the end of season four. Yeah. And it opens, the series opens at the very exact point where last season ended. Yeah, so it opens with one of the inmates, Daya, um, holding a gun at one of the guards because this guard illegally brought a, a loaded weapon into the prison and it went horribly wrong. <laughs> right we have to speak as one united group who's in are you insane no she's angry we're all angry you done our girl wrong mr caputo and we want justice to whom it may concern we the inmates of litchfield are human beings we are protesting the abusive conditions under which we are being held we're gonna give him a show. Ooh, gonna be super famous. <laughs> Don't forget to smile. Let's go back to the series as a whole, just to give some context. Yeah. The series takes place in 72 hours yeah. during this riot, which is a bit of a change of structure for the show, which usually takes place over yeah. weeks. Yeah, and I found that quite... Um, difficult to get my head around because it's so much happens in an episode that you kind of don't know how long that period of time is supposed to be because Mm -hmm. there's so many characters as well but what I found very interesting was the first episode for the first 20 minutes there's this really obnoxious alarm sound ringing off constantly for 20 minutes at the top of the first episode and it is really confrontational (laughs) when you start watching the programme I don't know if that, that kind of provides a way for the audience to tell time as well, because there was also the, um, when the lights went out, all the electricity went out, mm-hmm. and then it comes back on. So yeah. it kind of gives the audience a bit of a sense of the progression of time yeah. throughout the three-day period. But it is quite difficult, I felt, to wrap your head around the timeline of events. The kind of, um, the route that... Orange is the New Black has taken since the first series as a move into an ensemble cast from mainly focusing on, in the first series, the story of Piper, who moves into the prison. And, um, we see kind of the prison through her eyes. 
and as that as the series has developed um, it started to include more more of the characters more of the storylines um, so the, I mean this this series and, and the last few have just been a whole network of, of interlocking storylines so what did you think this season were there any storylines that stood out to you? Yeah there was a whole bunch but I think there's as much as I love that it's moved away from just Piper's introduction to the present and who she encounters, there's almost, I feel, to the point where there's too many character storylines in this season. Because some characters are in it for an episode and then gone for another three. Mm. And you're kind of left wondering what's going on with their character, what's happened to them, and then they pop up three episodes later and you're like, oh, okay, you're kind of been doing nothing for the last three episodes. Um... Yeah, there are a bunch of storylines that I really, really love. My favourite storyline this season was probably Tasty, negotiating the terms of the riot with um, the mayor's office and the people who own the prison. What I thought was quite compelling and also quite cheesy was that all the prisoners managed to come together and have this kind of manifesto of changes that they wanted to happen. Like, it's quite a fanciful notion, but... Also, I don't know if it is, but because it was like I mean they had serious demands and then they had other ones that were like oh they wanted more Cheetos and things yeah. like that. You know, I, oh, that was kind of realistic and, and fun. Yeah, no, I liked, it, but I think the actual community vibe of everyone coming together was probably something that wasn't likely to happen. But then I think a lot of the criticisms that I've read about Orange Is New Black is that people are like, oh, it's so unrealistic. Well, of course it is. It's like fiction. Like it's not. It was based on real life and now it's not so let's kind of enjoy the cheesy fanciful bits that we get and that's one that I really really liked um, that everyone came together and had this list of demands and tasty negotiating with two morons (laughs) about what it's like to be in prison I just thought was wonderful and she really like owned the space when she was doing it she knew how to work both Fig and Caputo and make them see sense yeah, I agree. I think of all the storylines, I felt that Tasty and the, the, her group of all the other black girls kind of they took the lead on on the mm-hmm. negotiations for the uh, the ending of the riot, and that was the most compelling and interesting storyline that was happening. I think. Yeah, and I think also seeing Tasty's journey throughout the whole thing, she's got this resentment for Pussy's girlfriend Soso, who mm. is very openly mourning the death of Pussy. And Tasty is very much keeping it together and taking action and trying to make sure the guard that shot Pus- that killed Pussy um, goes down for it. And it's only until the end of the season where you see her just completely lose it because everything's been completely messed up. Yeah. And she's Pussy isn't getting the justice that she, Tasty feels like she deserves. I found that really frustrating, but like in a good way. I thought oh, it was the most interesting. I mean, Martha story, and like, I were screaming at the TV for because it, like, she gets the. The um they agree to all of the demands apart from taking or arresting the the guard who inadvertently killed Pussy and um all the other inmates are like yeah we'll take that deal because it's given us everything apart from that but Tasty insists that they she's been very they, stubborn they must have all the demands and then it ends up they get none of the demands because our decision and it was like so frustrating I was like oh Tasty why so... didn't you just do it but equally you can totally understand where she's coming from oh 100% and I think, and I think it makes like such a strong character choice for her to maintain that this is what she wanted mm. this is where this whole thing came from for her and I just yeah I thought it was really well done 
And Daniel Brooks, who plays Tasty, is, is, is does such a good job. Like, everyone's talking about how she's clearly up for an Emmy. Yeah, um, I mean, Danielle Brooks as well, in between season four and season five of Orange is New Black, was one of the leading roles in The Colour Purple on Broadway, um, which she got phenomenal reviews for, hmm. um, playing alongside Cynthia Erivo and Jennifer Hudson for a while. So she's clearly this like very trained actress, and I read a wee bit about how Danielle Brooks and Samira Wiley, who played Pussy, they actually trained in Juilliard together, mm-hmm. or they overlapped by a year, so they actually had this real-life friendship. Um, and she took it really, really hard when she found out that Pussy was going to be written off the show. As did everyone watching. Yeah, 100%. Um, but I thought, yeah, I thought she was a real star in, in this season. As you said before... Um, this storyline did have a this series did have a whole load of storylines and I think aside from that one that main well, I, I call it the main storyline it was kind of the main narrative force the, mm-hmm. the negotiation of the riot and when mm-hmm. it was going to come to an end I think aside from that one of the things that I disliked about the season was that there were just so many characters and so many storylines going on that so few of them got to be fully articulated mm-hmm. you know one example was the the storyline between uh, Red and Blanca uh, they're looking for evidence to incriminate Piscatella who's the, the guard who, the kind of head guard last season so they're looking for evidence for Piscatella um, in order to get him fired uh, and it's kind of treated as a joke for like you know the first half of the season and then it becomes this huge slightly bizarre storyline where Piscatella enters the prison as a slasher movie villain yeah, a very them. horror episode. Yeah. It's very strange. I thought the storytelling like, you know, with that storyline as an example could be really uneven because Red and Black are... I mean, the, their their storyline received little attention for the first half of the season then it became this huge thing. And I think that was also the case with uh, Piper and Alex who were kind of barely there throughout the whole season. They didn't really do much. And I felt there was a lot of that that the writers were really struggling to, to kind of bring all these characters just together into something cohesive yeah and I think that's through the fact that they've written so many different like it's a direct problem from having written so many different characters mm. who are all very interesting and very diverse it's a great cast but there are too many of them um, that scene where Piscatella holds some of the women hostage mm. I absolutely loved Basically, Piscatella enters the prison and you see a bunch of people go missing and everyone who's gone missing winds up in this closet and Piscatella has bound them all, gagged them all and starts torturing Red um, in an attempt to embarrass her in front of her prison family and just the sheer horror of what goes on in that scene Red gets scalped the women get beaten it's really aggressive and violent and while I don't really know if it was necessary I think everyone's reactions in that scene were completely on point mm-hmm. some of the best acting I think of the well, it was definitely the best acting the people that were in that scene that was their best acting the whole season and it was actually dire- uh, directed by Alex Voss Laura Prevon. Really? Yeah, she oh, directed that. There's a photo one of them posted of like her directing with one hand tied around her back. Um, 
I just thought everyone's reactions in that were absolutely stunning. Yeah. It was a really high intensity scene. And as we were talking about the start, um, the way Orange is New Black kind of treats its characters and, and changes the audience's response to them. I think Piscatella was an interesting character in this season in this regard, in the same way that um, Bailey was the, the, the mm-hmm. guard that killed Pussy. Because Piscatella went from this crazy slasher villain who was essentially torturing the women in the prison and then we get a flashback to Piscatella in a previous prison um, where he, he killed a guard who had, he, he killed a, an inmate who had attacked his boyfriend by chaining him up in a shower and turning the heat on to the max in order to kill him and I actually read that that was based on a true really? event that happened in a prison yeah wow. so which is incredibly dark and then as the story moves on and we get into the last episode you are kind of made to feel a degree of sympathy for and that's the thing that's what frustrated me about this season is that I don't want to feel sympathy for them I quite like that though because I like it it makes you think more deeply about people and their motivations and and seeing characters who do inhuman things as humans it's uncomfortable to watch I I think I also felt that about the a lot of people kind of complained about this storyline about uh, Tiffany and Coates in previous seasons Coates had had raped Mm -hmm. Tiff but they kind of they get back together and she ends the season she's escaped the prison in his house and they're snuggled up on the sofa Mm -hmm. in this kind of beautiful romantic scene and it's incredibly uncomfortable because you know that he raped her in the season uh, the previous season he's not a nice guy and a lot of people in the reviews kind of complained about that how they thought it the tone was really off. But that was something I really enjoyed because I thought it made me feel really uncomfortable. And I liked that. I'll be interested to see where that storyline goes next Yeah, I think 100% because she's not been accounted for. But no, I'm not that thrilled about them trying to make us sympathise with people who are torturing and murdering inmates. I'm not wild about it. And I just, like, as much as his story was horrible and everything, it was, it felt like it was there entirely so that we would sympathise with his character. And I don't want to sympathise with a guy that's coming in and torturing women. Like, no matter what you went through in your past life, that's not... Yeah. It doesn't make it okay, do you know what I mean? I don't I don't think the show at all is trying to justify what he did, but it's, I don't know, it's given an explanation, it's given a psychological insight into why he's making the decisions he's making and I think that's I think that's interesting at least what, what did you think of the the ending how the season ended <sighs> um, so many things happened at the end of the season this is the problem again with Orange is New Black's cause there's so many characters so many different things happen at the end of the season but basically the there were kind of two there were two fates yeah the culmination of this season was the majority of prisoners were taken out of the prison after it was stormed by a SWAT team and um, or like riot officers is that what mm-hmm. they call them um, who weren't very nice no I mean <laughs> there was a lot of um, SWAT teams aren't known for their agreeableness no but there was like a bit of um, I can't think of what you call it uh, corruption within the SWAT team yeah definitely but everyone basically gets pulled out of the prison and lined up and counted and then so that's the majority of prisoners but there also happens to be, which I think was another fanciful thing that I actually quite enjoyed this season, there's an underground bunker hmm. 
in the old swimming pool of the prison, <laughs> um, which we've never heard about before, obviously, and then it just happens to be there this season. Um, and a bunch of women are stored down there, and it's quite nice. Um, and Piscatel has been held captive down there, and towards the end of the riot, they find out where this swimming pool is located and go and storm it, and it's this big dramatic ending that reveals nothing. <laughs> One that I really liked just um, before it finally ended was, you know, Red has this com- uh, conversation with Piscatella and eventually shows him mercy and lets him go. And then he, he walks out and is immediately shot by the right officers. Wonderful. But I really liked that. Absolutely like, wonderful. It was just so... I don't know, the, you know, they let they let him go and then it was like this this moment of mercy and compassion and then he was immediately killed. Well, that's felt what, so uncompromising. Well, and that's what I liked about it was that they weren't being blamed for that at all. Like it wasn't on them that this guy died. Mm. They actually let him go. So, that's pretty so handy, it's not yeah. their fault. So the season ends with some of the prisoners have been shipped off to other prisons um, and this, Which is, this riot team are facing down the, the ten inmates in, in the bunker and we, we don't know what their fate's going to be. The fact that I think this the, the riot team killed Piscatella by accident I think that means that maybe the characters in the swimming pool won't die because I think they'll be a, little, a, a bit more gun shy when they go in because they just accidentally killed a guard. I would hope but so. We'll see. I think one of the most touching moments in the finale was um, where uh, Flaka and Maritza mm. have to say goodbye to each other. They've kind of spent the season being the comic relief. Yeah, I think they had a great storyline. Uh, they were wonderful. They started a YouTube channel yeah. in prison. <laughs> and started vlogging from their phones and they were doing prison beauty vlogs and all this fantastic, um, just like almost sheer comedy storyline. And then they have this really touching moment where they realise that they're being separated into different buses and they can't really comprehend that they've spent all this time together and then suddenly they don't know where they're going to end up. And I found that very moving. I just thought that was a really perfect, hopefully not end to their relationship. But it was nice to get some drama in there. It was nice to for them to be able to voice how much they mean to each other. I think, although I enjoyed sort of sections of this season, like the... The relationship, for example, between Flaka Maritza and and Tasty Story, uh, and also fr- the flashbacks with Frida, I really enjoyed mm. a lot of the music there um, of her as a Girl Scout preparing um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Although I enjoyed those kind of parts, I did feel that the issue was that the season, that the season, unlike uh, unlike previous, unlike the last season, where you know they had all these guards, the new guards that came into the prison, and, and the kind of the fulcrum of the season was that. They were fighting against these guards. I felt that this season didn't really... There was little tension because I never felt that anyone was really in danger. You know, you were talking about the lack of realism. It felt like that, you know, the the prison officers, for example, they just decided that they weren't going to stop in the prison, so the inmates really felt, never really felt in danger. And the CEOs that the inmates were taking captive, you never really felt that they were going to do anything harmful to them because you're supposed to sympathise with these characters so they were never going to do anything too brutal yeah no but I did enjoy that I enjoyed seeing how the prison operated without the oppressive guard presence I found it really really interesting to see how all the women kind of worked together in times and then completely opposed each other in different times and I think that comes from the fact that it, it the show's been written with such a diverse cast of women mm. 
there's so many different groups of people there. And obviously that's going to have different conflicts. And I find that really, really interesting about Orange is New Black. And also to see the kind of transformed relationship between the guards and the, the inmates. It was like a reverse Stanford Prison experiment. Yeah. Where they, they started just kind of abusing the guards. But I did feel that that was never going to... It was never going to get really seen what they were doing to the guards. It felt kind of safe. And that, as well as the kind of proliferation of storylines, that this season felt a bit weaker than the last one. But I also felt with the end that it does show a lot of promise for previous seasons because they have the opportunity now. They said repeatedly towards the end that, oh, Litchfield's never going to be the same again. So they have the opportunity to kind of reboot this. They split a bunch of characters up. Maybe they can lose some. I feel like the following seasons, because they've signed up to do at least another two, Mm -hmm. that they may be able to bring a bit more focus back to it. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Did you enjoy the season overall? I really enjoyed it, but I understand that there are flaws in it. But I kind of... I like Orange is New Black as a complete work of fiction, and I just enjoy it for what it is, and then... It's done. Like, it's a really good week of television for me. Yeah. I always find once a year when I watch it, so I get the same kind of feeling when I watch Porridge, the old British sitcom, that prison sounds quite fun. Like, it makes me kind of want to go to prison, go in there, get to spend time with my friends all the time. You know, see, what I take away from it is that, like, I'd love to be surrounded by that many women. Like, I think that would be really, really interesting, much like the island like in which Woman. Wonder Woman is um, yeah. brought up on. I think that's what I love the most about Orange is New Black. There's so many women. It does kind of provide an interesting kind of escapism, but also a sort of terrifying escapism because it can be so brutal. Yeah. But I enjoyed this scene, on the whole. Some really interesting performances. The story was weak at times. But on the whole, I enjoyed it and I'll be interested to find out what happens next season. Next, we're talking about the new album by New Zealand singer-songwriter Lord, and it's been kind of a few years since we heard from Lord. Her last, or her first album, Pure Heroine, came out in twenty thirteen, and it's been almost four years, mm. um, a four-year wait until her second album, Melodrama, which has just come out this week. Um, it's produced by Jack Antonoff, or co-produced by Jack Antonoff from um, Fun. You know, for fun and bleachers, and he's he seems to be producing everyone's albums now. He produced uh, 1989, Taylor Swift, um, which is interesting because I thought they had a similar sound at times. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. He also co-wrote a fair few, if not all, of the songs on this album. Yeah, he was both co-writer and and co-producer. So, what did you what did you think of the album? I loved it wholeheartedly. There's a c- couple of songs that I'm not wild about, but on the whole. I just thought it was such a strong album. Um, a great kind of telling of both a relationship and a night out. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. She it, So it was kind of a concept album. And, you know, in interviews talking about it, she said it loosely follows the, the narrative of a single house party. And she's using that as a metaphor for life as a young adult. And she called it um, also the, the story of her last... Her, her life, she said on Twitter, the story of the last two wild, fluorescent years of my life. Wild and fluorescent being my favourite lyric in the entire album. I kind of want that tattooed somewhere on my body. Like, what a fantastic way to think about something. Do you know what I think? We were wild and fluorescent. 
It's a good word, fluorescent, isn't it? Yeah. I just think it's such a, like, it's a phrase that's so full of nostalgia, but also this, like, sheer joy of memory of what was, like, you're nostalgic about it, but you're also, like, so happy it happened. I just think it's fantastic. I think Lord is, like, a really strong lyricist, and that really shows on this album. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, top of the album is Greenlight, um, and that was the, the single that came out. I think she premiered it on SNL. That's a great song. I just love there's this kind of piano and, and drum beat going on leading up to the chorus and it just kind of explodes into yeah. this incredibly catchy chorus. SNL performance of it, you can see the pianist just like completely rocking out and I just thought, God, that is fantastic. Like you don't see that enough. Um but I think what Lord does a lot in this album is change the line slightly. And I love in Green Light where she goes, Oh honey, I'll come get my things but I can't let go. Or I wish I could get my things and just let go. And it's just that kind of you think one thing and then you can see her really wishing for something else. Like, she really wants to let go of whatever this thing was and just can't. I think it's amazing. Mm. That's a really good way of kind of keeping it interesting as well because I think yeah. one of the main criticisms you can make of, of pop music and of you know of which Green Light is, a, is an excellent example, that it can be a bit repetitive. Mm-hmm. But she does, with her songwriting, with her lyricism, always make it interesting and that you feel that something's progressing with these li- these little changes because even though they're so tiny they seem imbued with um, real substance and you kind of read a lot more into them because they're so subtle yeah I found her lyrics in this album as well incredibly honest like that the couplet of I'll be seeing you wherever I go I'll be seeing you down every road like that is totally the feeling you get when you're just in or just out of a relationship is that you can't help but notice or remember every fraction of time that you spent with someone. I think it's amazing just the the way that she's managed to write all this. And, I mean, I don't really know what she was thinking for Green Light, but I find that the most cathartic thing to scream. I'm waiting for the green light. It's so good. Like, it's just... I assumed the oh, green light. When I heard it, I was like, "Oh, that must be a great Gatsby." Reference. I've just read that it's not. Yeah, it's a great not. Gatsby. Yeah, yeah. She said that on Twitter. That yeah. it's just it's a reference to green meaning go like a traffic light. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite songs on the album was "Liability." I do my best to meet her demands, play it romance. We slow dance in the living room, but all that a stranger would see is one girl swaying alone stroking a cheek they say you're a little much for me you're a liability you're a little much for me so they pull back i just felt that that song um you know lyrically we're talking about i thought it was literally really interesting because um she's kind of talking about her relationship with herself as if she's another partner or she, she's kind of two people and she's having a romantic relationship with herself mm-hmm. and she she creates this image of um, her slow dancing in a living room. Yeah. If a stranger was looking on, she, they would only see one girl swaying alone, stroking her cheek. Yeah. And then she goes into this course. I really wanted to know, not know, but I, it's just I find that really, really interesting where she says, I'll go back to the only girl that ever loved me or something. 
Yeah, I guess I'll go home into the arms of the girl I love. Yeah, and it's just like that's such a brilliant way love, to say that. The only love I haven't screwed up. Yeah, it's just like so wonderful. And I like wanted that to be a real person. <laughs> and obviously it's her. But um, yeah, I thought the lyrics in, in this song was wonderful. When he said, uh, when she says, he made the big mistake of dancing in my storm. Hmm. <sighs> a total change of sound as well. Yeah. For, for Lord, you know, this is a piano ballad, which she hadn't done on on pure heroin um, I think it totally worked and it one of the best things about the album I thought were her vocals and that's they're really highlighted in, in liability like she's so clear and so emotive mm. I think and that was also the case on on Writer in the Dark which was another piano ballad and, mm-hmm. and I've got like th- a three favourite songs in the album Writer in the Dark is, is also one of them that, see Writer in the Dark is one that I kind of struggle with in parts because I'm not a huge fan of the the verse and the chorus but then I really love the bit that where she sings I am my mother's child I'll love you till my breathing stops I'll love you till you call the cops on me like yeah. what wonderful lyrics like and also the the music the way it builds up to that and then it's just yeah. this kind of soaring and the multi-layered vocals yeah. I thought it was just so kind of amazing yeah. and cathartic now she's gonna play and sing and lock you in her heart Bet you the day you kissed a rider in the dark I am my mother's child I love you till my breathing stops I love you till you call the cops on me But in our darkest hours I stumble on a secret Oh, but I loved like you know talking about the lyrics like the way she pronounces writer in the dark that you really get that sound and it's just so, so oh, sumptuous yeah. to hear yeah yeah um, sorry going back to liability it's got another example of that just like slightly changed lines just at the very end she says they're gonna watch me disappear into the sun you're all gonna watch me disappear into the sun mm-hmm. and I just love that it's kind of like hopeful but also really lonely do you know what yeah. I mean it's like the sunset is supposed to be a really happy thing but she's gone there alone like you're all gonna watch me because I'm gonna be the only one there I'm sorry it was really really beautiful and it's what I loved throughout this album is I think the ends of all the songs are fantastic mm-hmm. and so many of them you get this really powerful instrumental music but I think there's a minute 15 of supercut at the end that's just sound and it's mm-hmm. wonderful I love I think it's so, so brilliant. Did you have a favourite song? Supercut, 100%. Really? Supercut is just such a perfect song. I think it's like the right mix of a dance track, but also a music video. I I don't know if that's stupid, but I imagine myself, my life, some of my relationships, friendships, romantic as a music video like if you had to cut this all together what would it look like and that's exactly what she's talking about in this song and I just think it's so romantic it's like about that undying euphoria of a relationship that kind of sets you on fire and it's just like I mean the whole song summarised in the first lines in my head I play a super cut of us all the magic we gave off all the love we had and lost but then she goes through the whole kind of telling of it and it's just She's so honest at it again. It's we keep trying to talk about us. I'm someone you maybe might love, 
that doubt there is so beautiful. Like maybe might, but mm. you know, it's like alliterative and just so honest. I just oh, I love it. And then quiet afternoon crush. Like what a way to describe a relationship. I just think it's fantastic. In your car, the radio up. In your car, the radio up. We keep trying to talk about us. I'm someone you may be my love. I'll be your quiet afternoon crush. Be your violent overnight rush. Make you crazy over my touch. But it's just a super cut of us. Supercut super was one that I kind of I had to warm up to it because I felt like, I'm not hugely into dance music and I felt that the chorus was a bit kind of a generic dance like it had that kind of energy mm-hmm. um, of a dance track but I didn't know that it was particularly it was a little generic but I thought that the song was just so well structured and so dynamic yeah well that's the thing is like I think the refrain of this song um, the because in my head in my head I do everything right that whole section um, that ends with we were wild and fluorescent come home to my heart is just so mm. like she repeats that so many times and I'm just like on top of the world whenever whenever it comes on because it's almost different every time and it builds and she uses it to build the song and I just think it's fantastic and the first two lines of that um, section are about that like willingness to try and make a relationship work and the second two lines are this kind of romantic idyllic thought about being in a relationship but also has this connotation of nightlife Mm -hmm. that wild and fluorescent is like completely could be a night out a really mad night out or it's that really romantic remembrance of what you used to be I just think it's a fantastic song as well as these kind of serious meditations on on life and love as a young adult there was a real sense of humour about a lot of the album you know um, I loved the bit in, in Homemade Dynamite where she she goes now you know it's really gonna blow yeah, yeah she does a little yeah it's so childish explosion um i don't know it's really nice to listen to it it reminds me of like the kind of things that regina Spector does she's always doing like silly little yeah lyrics like that is um, that the second track in the album no yes no it's the third third um, um and the louvre as well there's one lyric in the louvre that i really loved um, i thought the louvre was very taylor swift Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's very... She tells the story of a relationship in a very similar manner to, to Taylor Swift. Very much, I think, in the first line, which I love, is that, well, Summer Slip does underneath her tongue. Hmm. I think the Louvre... I don't know. It might be my favourite on the album. I think maybe it's the best. I don't know. That's not the same as my favourite. But I just thought it was so... Just so well-structured. They had that... that um, you know, repeated line, um, broadcast the boom, 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 and make them all dance to it. Yeah, see, that's the bit I don't like about the Louvre. Yeah? Yeah. I, I didn't like that at first, but I, I don't know, I, I kind of came around to it and I felt that it really, that repetition really worked with what she was doing with the sound. Like, it almost sounded like liquid and you're being submerged in this kind of electronic sound and there's this, like, r- low frequency, really bassy drum going mm. through it. It's kind of, like, sinister and felt so physical. That I really liked the Louvre, like structurally. I just thought it was so dynamic in the way that, you know, it has the, the vocals really foregrounded in the lead up to the chorus, and then there's this mm-hmm. great chorus. I thought it was really good. I overthink your but punctuation use. Not my fault, just a thing that my mind do. Arise at the beginning. 
as well and that lyric as well it was really funny I wanted to mention them yeah they'll, they'll hang us in the Louvre down the back who cares still in the Louvre yeah <laughs> yeah I, nice. I, I, as it kind of every time I hear that I just kind of laugh because I'm like yeah she just I don't know it's almost like there's a kind of carefree nonchalantness about it mm. in that line she's like yeah who cares but it's the Louvre <laughs> like I don't know I thought it was wonderful listening to the album I did have the experience of like quite liking Lord like I feel like listening to the album and the lyrics and stuff that she seems that I could connect with her as a person I felt but mind that line though I'm just on track three is that Homemade Dynamite uh huh I don't know you super well but I think you might be the same as me mm that's one of the lines and that's exactly the way that you feel about Lord throughout this album is like obviously we know nothing about her other than what she shows to, like wants to tell us through her songs but you do kind of get that idea that you that she's someone that's approachable and relatable and likeable I don't know that's why I thought and she's so young know. as well like when um, Pure Heroin came out it took me about a year to listen to it because I was so resentful of the fact that someone younger than me had such great success. <laughs> I was like, does Lord not know that there's a cue to success? Yeah. And I was born first. <laughs> but uh, I got over that, now having met so many people that I'm far more talented th- than me. Um, but yeah, I think that youth is, is really is really good, isn't it? Um, I don't know, it gives her voice an interesting, um, an interesting thing. You know, we've had almost four years since our first album, which is quite a long time for... A second album, especially at the stage in her career, the Lord of that, she's so young, you'd expect her to follow up pretty quickly on her first album. Mm-hmm. But it's been a while, but totally worth the wait, I think. Yeah. I'm so excited, I'm so glad that the this album lived up to the expectations. A hundred percent. I think it, like, I didn't, I haven't even listened to the whole of Pure Heroin, but I'm quite intrigued to go back and re, or not rediscover, just discover that album for the I think first time. Pure Heron was one of my favourite albums of that year, but I think this one, just in terms of quality, really takes a step forward. So it's so exciting to see where, where Laura's going to go next. 100%, yeah. yeah. Keeping an eye on that. And now it's time for Choice Cuts, the recommendation segment of the podcast. And following my experiences last week with Marina Key's essays, this week I've recommended to Poppy the work of Paula Rego. Paula Rego, if you're not familiar, is a Portuguese artist who moved to Britain when she was in her 20s to study here and has mostly been working on in Britain since then. She's also a dame. Um, is a she? Of her excellent. Yeah, I didn't she's, know that. she's Dame Paula Rego. And her work. It's quite eclectic and she's moved in her career um, from earlier working on kind of abstract things to a more representational style. Often her work focuses on women and the the piece that we're going to be looking at today was worked on in in the late 90s. Uh, It's called Untitled, unhelpfully, um, and it's her exploration of abortion in in Portugal and um, her views on the plight of women in 20th century Portugal kind of a response to the fact that it was it was illegal to get an abortion in Portugal for so long. It was, yeah. What what triggered Rigo to, to work on these these pictures was uh, the 1998 referendum in order to legalise abortion in Portugal. And the, the no vote won by just over 1%, but the turnout in the election was 32%. You know, it was less than a third of the, the population turned out to vote. And Rigo was so appalled by that, she was like, okay, there's something, we need to do something, I need to kind of 
motivate the population um, because she'd seen the kind of horrors that women had been subjected to not being able to access abortions and she was like we need, I need to do something to change, to change this um, and between July 1998 and February 1999 she worked on these series of, of pictures um, 10 pastels and I think about as many etchings as well and these were ex- exhibited across Portugal and the idea of, of including the etchings was to increase the range because the, the prints are easier to, to transport than the, than the pastels so she could move them to where the prints couldn't go to where the, the paintings couldn't go so. See I wasn't a huge fan of the etchings I really loved the, the pastels and the colour choices that were in them but I found the etchings not as um, aesthetically pleasing well, interesting that you should use aesthetically pleasing um, because yeah the colours and and the and the pastels are kind of an odd choice I think you wouldn't expect something so bright to be used to to portray such dark subject matter but I think it provides a really great contrast to the the look of the women who are in the, mm-hmm. the pictures who some of the women are looking directly at the viewer and others are kind of curled up in, in pain or in sorrow um, but I love yeah I really love the really vibrant colours there's like one with yellow and then a blue and then a, a red belt and it's just really stands out to you which I think is is good when it's about that kind of subject matter it's like it kind of should catch your eye and yeah well the, Rigo think. herself said that this was her intention um, she said uh, that she wanted to make them look agreeable was the word she uses mm. in order to make people look at the the subject matter um, do, do you want to just kind of give a, a sense of what the, the pictures depict yeah, so there's different women in varying states of getting an abortion, really. Um, there's a couple sitting on top of bowls or jugs, um, others lying in bed. Um, as I said, some are curled up in pain, some of them are head thrown back in despair, almost. Or agony. Agony. Um, and then others are looking quite defiantly at I don't want to say camera because I don't even know if they were the viewer. Yeah, yeah, the viewer. Um, quite a lot of them actually are, are looking directly at the viewer. And then there's an odd one of a nurse, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of out of place. Well, I suppose it's out of place in that all the other ones are of people having abortions, mm-hmm. whereas this one is of someone helping someone to have an abortion. Yeah. Um, and there's all these kind of nice wee details that she's got in the, the pictures. Like there's a watch or someone like the red bell um buckets and chairs and then there's all the women are in kind of different degrees of dress Mm -hmm. um which kind of allude to the different classes and the different ages of the women there um so there's a couple of young girls dressed in school uniforms there's a woman in what looks like a kind of corset type thing and then there's like women in quite formal evening gowns um i believe that they are all supposed to be young girls um Oh. This is what I've read, you know, Rago talking about it. And I agree that some of them don't... Some of them look obviously like they're young girls mm-hmm. because, they're, I mean, their faces look young and they're wearing school uniforms, but I think they're all supposed to be pretty young, apart from that one exception of the, the abortionists rather right. than the women receiving the abortion. But comparing the these images to the sketches that Rago produced um, when she was working on the piece, there's quite a stark difference there in terms of, I suppose, explicitness mm. in, the, in the final pastels. Yeah they don't really include the kind of gory details of the abortion process in the way that the sketches do. But I find the sketches very difficult to ascertain what is actually going on in them. 
So I find them like a lot less compelling than the, I suppose the they castles. Are, they are just sketches. They weren't yeah. exhibited um, as part of the the exhibition. But um, and then they're a lot more, they're a lot more kind of explicit about the the details of the process. Whereas, in the pastels, those parts of the process, you can't see any blood, but blood is suggested by the use of of reds, um, and the kind of disorder of the the process is is symbolised by her, you know her use of objects and buckets and things knocked over, chairs knocked over. You can see that there's been a real struggle um, in the process. Yeah, and I think there's um, what I love the most about them in the sketchings and the etchings and the um, the pastels is the, the focus on the actual physical form of the female body. Mm-hmm. They're all quite similar, I think. Um, but I love the the way that she's drawn the legs and the arms is that you can really see the tautness of the muscles and the, the shape of the muscle. Um which I just find really, really interesting to look at because they're almost at angles that you don't often see in art. I think the the way that Rego portrays the, the female body in general is really interesting. If there's kind of a dominant aesthetic in Rego's work, it would be the grotesque, and I don't really right. see I don't really see that in this piece. But you know, people read the grotesque in, in Rego's work as a kind of rejection of sexualized representations of the female. And although I don't think that the grotesque is in appears so much in the in these paintings, I think we're seeing the same thing at work. I think Rego is rejecting a portrayal of um, women as as purely sexualized beings. She's also rejecting the idea that they're victims in this scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all the women, well, a lot of them are looking at the viewer, and others are, you know, they are curled up or they're not looking. Um, towards their audience almost but she states that they're all there of their own choice mm-hmm. they're not forced into this situation it's a quote that says crucially they're doing this they're not having it done to them it's their right and their choice none of them accepts the role of the victim yeah and i just find that like a really i don't know if empowering is the right word but it's quite a forceful it makes the collection quite forceful it's very kind of hits you head on I think that's especially true in the paintings, uh, in the pastel, sorry, as you say, but where the the subject is looking straight out at mm. the viewer because the, their gaze is just so uncompromising and, and so confident. You know, the society at, in Portugal at this time was, it was post the, the authoritarian regime of Salazar, which was, you know, deeply Catholic and enforced Catholic mm. doctrine. But even when Portugal had moved into a, a democratic model, it was still, you know, profoundly Catholic, and these women, I think, looking out are rejecting a society that would portray them as as criminals or or weak, mm-hmm. and they're kind of asserting their own their own power. Yeah, there's a real strength this. behind the images. I don't know. The gaze is interesting because I I don't know whether to read it as a kind of invitation in to the paintings, or is it a rejection of the viewer and saying. A, a kind of assertion of independence and we don't need the viewer hmm. because the gaze is so powerful and so independent I think it's we don't need the viewer yeah. that's how I took it anyway I just felt like I was it's almost yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 it, it kind of made, makes you uncomfortable though because it's like you're a voyeur um, mm-hmm. who's not needed there you get that impression from the gaze that um, that, that kind of fierce we're independence like, yeah, we're, I mean we're not needed there it is 
only their thing. But I love how some of them also look quite bored. What ones in particular do you think? Look- um, the woman in the red dress standing up against the wall. Mm-hmm. She looks quite bored. Untitled number eight. So I've not I've not paid attention to the titles of them. The woman um, who's got her legs in between the two chairs. Yeah. That's um, number five. And then the woman who's lying on the the bed or the the couch with the yellow blanket underneath her, looking yeah, up at the ceiling. That's like, part of the triptych. She just seems kind of like she's just waiting for it to be done. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of like that. It's almost every day. It's just quite. Mm-hmm. I, I well, know, there's a nonchalant, nonchalantness that I quite like about it. I think that you know you say it's every day and maybe not quite every day, but I think what motivated Rago to to make these pictures was. The fact that abortion was such a, a common occurrence, yeah, and um, you know Portugal at the time, you know, without the use of of contraception, um, it was something the women had to go through all the time, um, and without a legal uh, a legal means of doing that, it was always going to be a brutal um, brutal process. But uh, I think the strongest thing about these pictures is the way that they kind of challenge the the black and white thinking that happens in, in debates on abortion you know it's such a yeah and it's such a kind of prevalent topic just mm-hmm. now um i read a statistic recently that says that um women who are married and who have already had children are like the majority of women that go and get abortions like they've already had kids and they can't afford to raise another one and i just find that really interesting because that's not what is no. portrayed at all about abortions it's like teen pregnancy and you know it's all this horrible kind of like circumstances when in reality it could be literally any circumstance like there's no telling why anyone's going to get an abortion and the two sides in the abortion debate are so passionate and so fierce and so convinced mm-hmm. of their of the rightness and i think paul Arrigo kind of pokes holes in at least the the pro-life argument and and that certainty and these pictures. Yeah, I mean, she's certainly coming from a pro-choice. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the pro-life kind of argument... I, I mean, I, I don't mean to represent misrepresent either side of the, the argument. You know, I won't try not to let my own views um, affect this. But often the, the women who are doing the abortions from that perspective are portrayed as criminals. Who are, you know, essentially murderers. Mm. But Regal complicates that in these paintings by portraying the, the, the woman having the abortions as children, mm. you know. So they are maybe murderers in the, um, from a pro-life perspective, but you're also saying that, you know, they're victims. And it also challenges that kind of... But they're not victims. No, they're not victims either. They're kind of asserting their own uh-huh. independence and power. So it's a really... It just, it's she, such a complicated She completely splits that, that dichotomy. Mm. And also the kind of virgin whore representation of women yeah. in art. She completely turns that on its head because these women you know they're sinners two times over you know they've not only have they had sex but they they've also they're, they're committing an mm. act of murder but also the, they resemble schoolgirls. they're like innocent virginal qualities and she's kind of challenging this kind of idea that women are either virgins or whores by creating these figures that have examples of two of the two features yeah it's a really deep collection that totally forces you to think about the backstory teach of the woman and about the abortion argument as a whole. There was an interesting um, quote that I heard from, or read from Paula Rago and she was talking about the role of pain and pleasure in the paintings. 
the pain, the physical pain, and the erotic bit are tied. Those girls in the pictures are in a position which could be either for penetration of some kind of abortionist's hand or, or penetration from her lover, one or the other, they're both equal. And the, the two things are deeply tied in those pictures. Those things are deeply tied in the pictures. And you can see that looking at them, um, especially uh, on Title Five, where the woman's got her leg up on two chairs, you know, her mm. legs are spread and they're kind of propped up. You know, it, it's ambiguous. And, you know, the gaze that she's looking at, it could be a gaze at an abortionist, it could be the, uh, the gaze of a lover. I think that's really effective because it, it sets up this connection between pain and pleasure and suggests that when a woman decides to have sex with a man, she's risking the pain of either abortion or of childbirth. And those things are intimately tied, especially in a society where contraception is not available and legal abortion is not available. You know, there's this intimate link between pleasure and pain for a woman. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, connection. And I guess, because Portugal's a Catholic country, isn't it? Mm -hmm. the, the birth rates are extremely high due to the like powerful religious impact in the country, but also therefore the abortion rates are probably significantly higher. But obviously they're all, well, we're all illegal. It is legal now. In it is legal now, yeah. Um, you know, I watched a documentary about Paula Rego recently, it was on the BBC, and they had interviews with the Prime Minister in Portugal at the time, and he was talking about the influence of these, these paintings, and he, he said it really ruffled some feathers. As I think about any work to do with abortion does. Yeah, but you know, especially in um, yeah. such a deeply Catholic country as, as Portugal. But uh, then in 2007, they had another referendum. Uh, and abortion was legalised this time by a 59% majority. And I don't know how much we can attribute that to, to, uh, to Paul Rigo's paintings, but um, certainly it does seem to have some influence in him. Yeah, uh, she's certainly part of a growing movement of people who are being more liberal. Hmm. And um, I mean, she's a big name in Portugal. Um, she's got her own museum. I think she may be. I tried to fact check this, but I couldn't find anything. Um, but I think she might be the only living artist to have her own museum. What she really? does in Portugal, yeah. Wow. So, you know, she's kind of a superstar there. So uh, you know, it makes sense that. Uh, That's fascinating. She's like the the Dali and um, who's the other big Spanish guy? Picasso. No, the other one. Velasquez, Goya. No, maybe it is Picasso. It's not no Gaudi is what I'm thinking of. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of Portugal, I think that's really interesting. Just because you, like, I don't know, I go to Spain and go to these museums, and then there's actually someone living out there. Yeah. With their own mum. But she doesn't live there. She lives in Brown. Yeah, but like, I mean, out in, in the London. world. Yeah. And she's a woman. That's amazing. I mean, I don't have the most intellectual understanding of visual art, in that sense. But yeah, I don't have that intellectual uh, criticism towards art of that kind. But I did enjoy it and I liked the like particularly was really drawn to the shapes that she managed to create and how lifelike they were of mm. the the female form. One thing that I was thinking about when looking at or it was actually at night after having looked at these pictures was kind of the nature of my own pleasure. I don't want to use the word pleasure but you know because I like looking at these paintings you know and, and I get a lot from them but I was just wondering about what that you know, how, how do we understand what that 
feeling is because you know what is being portrayed in these pictures is so sort of harrowing and when you're looking at them you you know the, the suffering is so is so palpable yet you can also enjoy looking at them so what I mean well, what is that like, that's so enjoyable well it's a bit like a lot of the criticism for Orange is New Black is that it was trauma porn in that situations of horror and trauma like traumatic situations were made purely for the viewer's enjoyment but what is that then what where does enjoyment come from do you think um, we as humans love drama is it drama yeah is it the drama it's of, conflict of the abortion is it conflict in there I suppose there's the conflict I the, between well I don't know I find the, the image is quite dramatic because of the shapes that are used in them mm-hmm. because of the expressions of the body and the fact that it's a full body expression it's not just a look on someone's face it's this complete you know every limb is involved in the the, um, the choice that's being made there and that is really dramatic to look at I suppose conflict is an interesting way to look at it because this pictures are filled with conflict both yeah. between the woman and the fetus and the woman in society but there's a also though in quite a few of them the conflict of colours because all the colours mm. are really yeah. standing out but then I mean all the women are white um, and they've got all very pale skin so that stands in complete conflict to the rest of the so colours the conflict of you know subject matter and, and yeah. colour but I think there's maybe a, a difference when, when talking about conflict between oranges and new black which has a narrative which progresses through time and these pictures where they're short of a narrative there but you, you put it there it's not this I don't know if it's the same experience as watching a story unfold oh no I don't think it's the same experience at all but I think there is that human enjoyment of seeing suffering almost I've heard the theory before that we enjoy watching people suffer because it makes us feel sympathy and we like that because it tells us that we are sympathetic Not, yeah. people and we're nice and we and care about people. Yes. But your experience of, of these paintings, positive? Or pastels, I keep calling them paintings, sorry. Pastels. Yeah, I thought they were... They definitely gave me a lot to think about and I did, as weird as this sounds, enjoy the aesthetics of them. Mm. Because of the way that she portrayed the female form, I thought was really interesting. Well, we'll put a few of them on social media on Instagram Facebook and on the website if you want to look at them but you can also Google Paul Arrigo, um abortion would would bring them up cause it, but the series is untitled so I guess it's harder to find but we'll make them available if you want to check them out I guess that wraps us up for the week or for the for the fortnight we're doing this fortnightly well we'll record one next week and see if we will we yeah, have yeah okay yeah we will I've got to make Jordan do things I'm what you guys don't know is that we record the intro about seven times before you hear it. I have to practice. I get so nervous. I have to build myself up to it. Right. We've um, We're done. veered off long enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you want to get in touch, we've had some good feedback about um, last week's podcast. Yeah, we've that had some... Very exciting. Very long feedback. Yeah. Thank re- you, Ida. And um, we really appreciate you that. You taught us some... Some good stuff. So, if anyone else wants to get in touch, you can do it via email at hello at quiteuseless.co.uk or you can get us on Facebook, The Quite Useless Podcast, or on Twitter or on Instagram at the quite useless, at quite useless Pod. And we would love to hear from you if you have any suggestions of what we might want to talk about. I think next episode, we're going to be talking, among other things, about Netflix's Glow. A new series has just come out on yeah, Netflix. Yes, so I've just finished it this morning. I haven't so seen any of it, so I'm looking I'm forward to I'm going to, to write it. my thoughts down, so I don't forget. 
So, we will see you in the next episode. Bye.